Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. John chapter number 10. And we will be reading from verse 25 down through verse number 30. Responsively, we'll read the even verses out loud, and I'll read the odd verses alone. Beginning in verse 25, the Bible says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Together, verse 26, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I want to ask what might seem like an obvious question to some, but a question other people struggle with. This question will be the title of the sermon this morning. How many times does a person get saved? How many times does a person get saved? Let's pray. Lord, I ask for uh, your help as I preach a sermon that um, might seem basic to some, but Lord, is an area of struggle for many. And Lord, a, a truth that we all probably should know a little bit better than we do. And Lord, I've been a Christian now for 30, coming up on 30 years. I have explained this principle to people hundreds and hundreds of times. And even in my studies this week, I learned some things that I did not know. And so, Lord, I pray all of us would be more equipped to answer this question to others who struggle in our lives. And that those who don't know about eternal security, that they'll get that issue settled once and for all this morning. Lord, I pray for the people online that are watching or the people that will stumble upon this sermon later on the Internet that maybe struggle with this topic. May you give clarity to them through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Last week we, we talked at length about the process of sanctification. Now, that is an expensive way of saying um, or explaining the process of becoming like Jesus. I talked about the kid at my school that uh, hung out with me one day um, uh, in the aftercare program. I was in the fifth or sixth grade, and, and he treated me like I was his equal, and I looked up to him and wanted to be like him the rest of the school year. I copied a lot of the things he did and, and, and the way he uh, talked, the way he acted, and, and I wanted to become like him. I began to mimic my behavior his direction. Uh, just because uh, there was an older kid that showed me a little bit of positive attention. And so uh, Jesus has showed you more than just a little bit of positive attention. If you are saved, He has invested in you. He has washed away your sins. He has promised you a home in heaven. He, is, he has radically transformed your heart. Do you want to become like Jesus? And at what expense are you willing to become like Him? Are you willing to set aside uh, bad habits that keep you from becoming like Jesus? And are you willing to not only kick out the old habits, but bring in new habits that mimic Christ? Mimic Christ. Now, some believers make great strides right away. All right? I'll give you an example here. I have known men who were alcoholics or drug dealers, drug, rather drug doers, and they got saved, and boy, they got Saved. Not that they got saved any more than anyone else, but it was like instantaneously God took the alcohol away from them. God took the cigarettes away from them. God took 
the, uh, the opiates away from them, the drug abuse away from them, and they were delivered. They walked away from the drinking and they never drank again. They walked away from cigarettes and never smoked again. And it was instantaneous, in some senses, instantaneous sanctification, instantaneous uh, a lifestyle cleansing. They not only stuck by their initial growth, but they continued progressing the right direction. So they were, they were lost in debaucherous, they got saved, they immediately gave up a lot of the debaucherous habits, and they began to make gigantic steps, and then slowly began to make little steps, and continue to make steps toward Christ. I've met plenty of people that way. I've met other believers who make great initial strides, and then fall back into some of those sinful habits that plagued them prior to salvation. I know people that uh, quit alcohol right after salvation and a drunken lifestyle, uh, but life got hard on them and they fell right back into it. Now, I think it's appropriate to say here, God did not call you or me to be fruit inspectors. There's a verse in the Bible that says, you, you shall know them by their fruits. That is not talking, to inspect, talking about inspecting someone's salvation. It is not my job to guess whether or not you're saved. It's not my job. I can't look in your heart and know if you trusted Christ. I shouldn't do that to you, you shouldn't do that to me, and we shouldn't do that to others. Now, it's one thing to be concerned about someone's salvation, or lack thereof. But it's another thing to have a pharisaical attitude and say, Well, I don't think he ever got saved. You, you can't know that. You can't know that. Listen, I've had people sit in my office and weep. Grown men, masculine men, sit in my office and weep. Because some addiction had a grip on them and they were trying their very best to kick it and they just couldn't. They, the last thing they need is some Christian looking down their pharisaical nose and saying, Well, I don't think he ever actually got saved. Are you really helping the, the, the problem? With that attitude. God didn't call you to be a fruit inspector. Well, you let God do the fruit inspecting. And you just encourage and edify with your, with your words. Some people, the sanctification process, man, it is immediately. The alcoholism is dropped and they never go back. They never turn back. Other people, they uh, will quit those sinful habits for a bit and then fall back in. And then there's other people who will make a profession of faith. They'll pray the sinner's prayer. They'll ask God to forgive them of their sins and to take them to heaven. And then you see very little evidence of change in their life at all. Very little evidence. They, they don't start attending church and they really don't change much of anything. And you wonder if they ever really got saved. And again, I don't know that Everyone, I know that everyone that prays a prayer does not get saved because not everyone means that prayer. But if they believed, the Holy Spirit was calling them, and they meant what they said, they got saved. They may not overcome the temptations the way you did. They may not overcome all the sins that you've overcome, but again, it's not our place to question. But there is this question that's brought up. There is this question that's brought up. Do those who fall back into sin or refuse to leave sin, do they lose their salvation? Do they lose their salvation? Today we're going to address this topic. Can someone who has been saved from their sin become lost again in their sin? Or, how many times does a person need to get saved? My proposition to you this morning is simple. You did not work to get your salvation. 
So you do not need to work to keep your salvation. Wasn't your labor that got it. It can't be your labor that keeps it. The title of the sermon this morning poses the question, how many times does a person get saved? The answer in Scripture could not be any clearer. The answer is once. Once. Once you get saved, you're always saved. And I'm going to present both sides of the argument this morning. I'm going to share with you what those who believe you can lose your salvation. I'm going to share with you some verses they use. That does seem to say that in some places, but they don't really understand the Bible. And then I'm going to show you just a few of about a hundred different ways the Bible explains that salvation is permanent. We're going to look at three distinct thoughts this morning about this idea of eternal security. Below our third point, I'm going to share nine promises from Scripture that proves that once you get saved, you stay saved. And by the way, I'm giving you nine. After I put the sermon together, I thought of about five or six others without even working real hard at it, all right? And time does not allow me to give every single proof. But uh, we're going to look at nine solid proofs in the Bible that once you get saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Let's jump right in this morning. Notice with me point number one, the misunderstandings of Scripture. The misunderstandings of Scripture. Can you turn in your Bibles over to Galatians chapter 5? If you're in the book of John, that's to the right, to the right. John, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 4. If you hold the position that you can lose your salvation, or you meet someone that holds that position, this will be one of the first verses they take you to. All right? And so let's look at Galatians 5.4. I'm going to show you three verses. And there are others they use, but these are three of the primary ones. And we're going to, um, uh, we're going to look at them uh, closely today. Uh, Galatians 5.4 says this, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Fallen from grace. So, uh, can a person who has been saved fall from grace? Fall from grace. Okay, I want you to put a marker in Galatians 5. We're going to come back to it. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. So, Galatians 5, 4. Uh, they, uh, the, uh, those who believe you can lose your salvation, they'll argue that uh, uh, Christ can become no effect to you and that you can fall from grace. You were in grace, you were saved in grace, and then you fell from it. Alright, let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. We're going to come back to Galatians 5, 4 in a few minutes. So Matthew 10, 22 is another common verse they'll take you to. And it says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. See the stipulation there on your salvation? you got to endure to the end. Does this verse teach that Christians have to endure to the end to be saved? Huh. All right, one more. One more. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 26. Again, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 10 somehow if you can. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. Let me uh, show you one more here. They'll, they'll take you to. Um, we, we need to make sure that not only we understand our arguments, but we're ready when they come at us with their arguments. All right? Hebrews 10, 26. 
By the way, this debate's been going on in Christianity since the Bible was written. And I'm going to give you the reasons why it's been going on in just a moment. But look at verse 26 with me. The Bible says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So, uh, you've received the knowledge of the truth. You choose to sin willfully. Then the, the sacrifice for your sins is taken away. So, if you choose sin after salvation, does that mean that God strips His sacrifice away from your account? Now again, these are three of the verses they'll take you to. Let me give you um, some guiding principles here. And then we're going to come back and look at these three verses with these guiding principles, alright? Uh, letter A, we must provide context. We must provide context, alright? Historical context... And then intellectual context. Let me give you A, B, and C quickly, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back and look at these all, all, all together. Alright, letter B. We must prayerfully compare. We must prayerfully compare. Um, and then letter C. We must pursue clarity. We must pursue clarity. So, uh, all, uh, let's, let's take these kind of, uh, let's go in reverse order with these. Uh, let's first talk about pursuing clarity. All right. Back in John chapter number 10, I know I've got you in three, four, four, three or four different places right now. Uh, if you can't get back there easily, let me read a couple verses for you. All right. Pursue clarity. Listen to what the Bible says. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man Pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, uh, there's some pretty strong language in John 10, 28 and 29. Uh, this gift that we get is an eternal gift, and it shall the gift shall never perish. And no man can pluck you out of the hand of Jesus, and then no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. This verse seems to strongly indicate that once you become a child of God, once you receive the gift of eternal life, that can never be taken away. So, which is it? Is it that you can fall from grace? Is it that uh, that you have to endure to the end to be saved? Is it that you can have the sacrifice for your sins stripped away after you're saved? Or is it that once you're saved, you're always saved? Which is it? Uh, a God is not a God of disorder and confusion. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 33 says this, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. God is not the author of confusion. What, what am I getting at here? God does not write two conflicting truths in the same book. Either you're always saved, or you can lose your salvation. It isn't one or the other. And these aren't two contradicting thoughts in the same book. So, uh, when you are trying to understand a, a verse, and it goes against uh, other verses, or seemingly goes against other verses, the verse guiding principle is that you've got to pursue clarity. Alright, the second idea here is that you've got to prayerfully compare. Now, this is a big mistake that cults and false religions make. They'll take a verse... They'll read it, they pull and extrapolate what they want to out of it, and they ignore all the rest of the teaching of the Bible. Here's what you got to do. If you're studying a topic, and you read a verse, and you go, huh, that doesn't seem to fit what other places in the Bible say. Here's what you do. You take all the verses of the Bible on that topic, and you lay them down on the table. Put them on a sheet of paper. And if 99% of them say one thing, and then the other 1% seems to say something different... 
Well, you don't pick the 1% and go, I'm building a whole faith off of that. People that have built up this belief that you can lose your salvation, they have taken a couple verses, they twisted them out of context, and they've built a whole religion, a whole religion off of that. So you've got to pursue clarity, and then, uh, letter A there, you've got to um, provide context. Provide context. Now, two types of context that you need to have is historical context. To come back tonight, I'm going to talk about a very uh, complicated sounding word. It's the word dispensations. All right. That, that, all that word means is eras. Eras in the Bible. All right. Uh, and so God is the same God and God does not change, but God chose to work differently, uh, interact differently with man during different eras of the Bible. Right now we are currently in the church age. God interacts differently with us in the church age than he did with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Then he did with, uh, say, Job and, and, uh, Noah after the fall. Then he did with Moses and then he did with Abraham. God acts differently with mankind. And so what I'm getting at here is that if you are reading a verse and it's dealing with a different era, you've got to provide historical context to what you're reading. You also have to provide intellectual context. Another big mistake people make is they'll read a verse in the middle of a chapter. They don't read the verses prior and they don't read the verses after. They take that one verse and they build a whole faith. They build a whole belief system off of one verse taken out of the rest of the chapter. And i got to tell you, that's very dangerous to do. Now, when I sat down to study for this sermon, I, I, uh, I, I'm going to tell you, I could have very easily not addressed what I'm addressing today and just given you the nine proofs of, of once saved, always saved. But I decided, listen, I need to do my homework. I need to understand the other side of the argument. I'll make a confession to you. I never really even considered the other side of the argument because to me, it's such a slam dunk for what I believe. What's the other side uh, uh, matter? But this week I sat down to study and as I began to look on the internet for the other side's opposing views, I never even looked at these verses in that context. And so I read the one verse and what I did is I opened my Bible to Galatians 5.4. I read the verse, I read their argument and I said, okay, let's provide context. Let's read one verse 1 of Galatians 5 all the way down to the end of the chapter, and let's understand what verse 4 is saying in context of the rest of it. So uh, if you can, go back to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. Let's get an understanding of what this means. Look back at verse 3. Let's put the verse in the context of what Paul is saying to the church of Galatia. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Okay? Now, let me give you some historical context. And then let me give you some intellectual context. Notice that idea of being circumcised. Now, in our Western culture we live in, most males are circumcised after birth. It's not debated. Now, if you want to opt out of that, you can, but the most, most parents have their, their male children circumcised. But that wasn't the case back in uh, Paul's day. Jewish boys were circumcised the way that most Western culture children are today. But that was really it. If you were a Gentile boy at birth, you weren't circumcised. 
Getting circumcised as an adult was a difficult decision to make. It was not one that was made lightly. You'd be in pain for a long time. Now, you had to make a choice. Am I going to choose the culture that comes with circumcision, or am I going to choose another religious method? You see, circumcision was attached to Judaism. What Paul was saying here to this Church of Galatia, the church of Galatia was a Gentile church. So, putting this in historical context, Paul's writing a letter to a church filled with non-circumcised Gentiles. And he's saying to them, this church that not only is filled with Gentiles, a church that is struggling with legalism or works-based salvation, he's saying to them, he's saying, listen, you have got to make a choice between Judaism or being saved by the by keeping the law or Christianity being saved by grace. If you as a Gentile go as far as getting circumcised, what you're saying is, I choose Judaism, I choose to be under the law, and I choose to have to keep all of the laws dictated by God through Moses on Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, Some 500 and something laws. And what that person was saying is that by choosing circumcision, I choose a works-based salvation. And Paul here is giving this church of Galatia an ultimatum. He's building up a straw man to blow over. He's saying, look, uh, 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 rather one extreme and the other, you need to choose. Are you a works-based faith or are you a grace-based church? Which is it? Are you going to believe salvation by the grace of God or are you going to believe salvation by the keeping of the law? Look back at verse 3. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. If you want to choose Judaism, then you're going to have to keep the whole law. That's the only way. And now, now with that in mind, look at verse 4. We've provided historical context and intellectual context. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the people that chose Judaism. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. That doesn't mean that you were in grace and you fell. That means you have shoved grace away and you have chosen the law. This isn't a verse about people who are saved choosing to sin and falling from grace. This is a, this is a verse that's talking about people who are choosing a works-based salvation and shoving grace to the side. They are falling from any opportunity to receive grace. So now Galatians 5.4 doesn't really work for their argument. Turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We were there just a moment ago. There, uh, the Bible says in verse 22, But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. So, if you believe you can lose your salvation, this verse is used to say, See, you've got to endure inside your faith. You've got to keep your faith. You've got to be a believer and abide by a strict code of conduct. And you've got to endure to the end, and then God will save you. Well, is that really what this says? Look back at verse 16. Let's look at the context of this here. Behold, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. He's getting ready to die and send them out into the world to evangelize the world. That is the historical context. Now let's look at this. Verse 16. Behold, I send you forth, I, Jesus, send you, the disciples, forth, as sheep into the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as servants and harmless as doves. 
But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in the same uh, hour uh, what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now, does anybody see the context here? This is not about being saved from hell. This is about being saved from persecution. Is that clear? When you read that, to take verse 22 and pull it out of that chapter and say, this verse is talking about, uh, this verse is talking about enduring to the end to be saved by, from hell. Boy, you're really not reading the verses around it. This is, Jesus is telling his disciples, look, you're getting ready, uh, you're getting ready to charge into the, into the lion's mouth. I think of that poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Where uh, uh, they talk about charging in, into the, I can't, can't remember the poem, it's slipping my mind. But he talks about going into the, into the jaws of death and, and have courage and stand strong. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to leave and you're going to take the gospel around the world. You're going to be all in on it. And boy, you're going to have children rise up against parents. Parents rise up against children. Friend against friend. It's going to get nasty. You're going to get persecuted. But if you will endure to the end, I will save you, I will save you during that time of persecution. This is not talking about being saved from hell. This is talking about being saved out of the hand of the persecutors. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Let's look at the third one here, that the uh, uh, those who believe you can lose your salvation, that they'll take you to. Again, there's others, but these are three of the primary ones they take you to. Again, let's provide clarity by providing context and comparison. If we sin willfully, if we sin willfully, after that we have received... Well, let's look at the verse first. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 26. It says there, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. I posed the question, if you choose sin after salvation, does that mean that God strips His sacrifice away from your account? Now, before I jump into the explanation, let me just uh, make a couple of obvious statements, alright? Uh, or rather, let me ask a couple of obvious questions. How many of you here have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you? Raise your hand. Alright, my hand's up too. Anybody else like me that after, since you've been saved, there has been at least once in your saved life that you have deliberately chosen to sin? Oh boy. Do you know that to hold this position, there is a lack of understanding of just how sinful we are? We don't really get it. And the people that hold this position, they're generally very pious. Very pharisaical. I can live my life in a way 
that is above the fray enough where somehow I'll be able to maintain my salvation. If I were to take all of your thoughts out of your head and place them in word form and let them scroll up the screen from the last 24 hours, there's not a person in this room that wouldn't be embarrassed at some point. We're more sinful than we realize. So to hold to a position that believes that somehow I can be good enough for God to not, to not um, uh, expel me and strip my salvation from me, boy, that is a pious attitude. Let's, let's look at verse 26 here. There are a lot of people that have the knowledge of the truth, but they're not going to go to heaven. They're not going to go to heaven. In fact, 18 inches separates a lot of people. 18 inches, head to heart. 18 inches separate a lot of people from heaven and and hell. They know the truth of salvation, but they refuse to exercise the faith to get salvation. Let me illustrate it this way, alright? Let's say that my wife and I decided we were going to take you and your family on a vacation to Hawaii. Who's in? Alright. Um, and um, uh, I take uh, some money out of my savings and I buy tickets to go to Hawaii. Alright, I get your name and your birthday and all the information I need and, and I buy you and your family tickets and I buy me and my family tickets and the day comes for us to, to depart out of the airport and we drive up and uh, drive, drive down to New York to the airport and we, uh, we go through TSA, and we get on the other side, and we get something to eat, and we find our way into the terminal, and uh, we're standing there at the gate, and I give you your ticket, and you're holding your ticket, and you see that it has your name on it, and you see that it has the gate number on it, and you look up at the screen there at the, at the gate, and it says the flight number that's on your ticket, and it has Honolulu as the destination, the same as your ticket. And I look at you, and we look out the window, and we see the airplane there, and they're getting it ready for us to go. And I look at you and I say, do you believe that that plane is flying to Hawaii? It's a nonstop flight to Hawaii. And you go, yeah, yeah, I believe that. All right, you intellectually believe The time comes for our group to board the plane, and you won't get on the plane. And I say, you got to get on the plane. And you say, what, I'm afraid to fly. And I say, it doesn't matter if you're afraid to fly, I bought the ticket. Get on the plane! (laughs) And uh, uh, I can't drag you on that plane, and so you just get left standing in the terminal while the plane flies off into the into the horizon there. Did you really believe? You believed up here, but you didn't believe right here. There's a lot of people that believe that Jesus died on the cross. At least they have the knowledge of truth. They've not exercised the faith. Look back at verse 26 with me, and let's look at the verse with that thought process in mind. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. Nowhere does it say there that we've received the truth. We've just received the knowledge of it. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. You know what this verse is saying? That once you know how to go to heaven, and you choose not to exercise that faith, you can and will eventually run out the patience of God to save you. God has that sacrifice there. 
He's saying, I already killed my son for you. He raised from the dead. He has the power to save you, and He's willing to save you if you'll exercise your faith. And you get that knowledge, you understand that principle, and you go, well, I will in time, but not right now. Or, I just don't think I will. Eventually, God says, alright, I'm pulling the deal off the table. You can't get saved. I'm not going to save you. And there are a lot of people I have stood in their hospital room while they were on their deathbed and I have given them the gospel. And I can, I, I'm thinking about one man right now, uh, back in Hagerstown. He looked at me and he said, I had this explained to me when I was a young man and I had it explained to me and explained to me and explained to me and I would not take advantage of it. I would not become a believer. I was enjoying my sin too much. He said, I have no desire to believe. You know why? God had taken the sacrifice off the table. That man died and went to hell because he refused to believe. You can run God's patience out. This is not a verse about falling from your faith. This is a verse about having the knowledge and not acting on it. Number two, let me, let me move on and let's, let's look at the motives of many. The motives of many. So then, if Scripture is clear about the security given to our souls at the point of salvation, why do so many people seek to misinterpret the Bible? Now, I'll say this. The masses who believe you can lose your salvation, they're well-meaning, well-intended people, and they just don't fully understand Bible doctrine. Before I answer that question, let me step back and, and show you the stark contrast between the two types of religions in the world. I, I looked, up, looked it up one time. Um, I, I don't remember the number anymore, but I'll, I'll lowball the number. I'll, I'll come low under the number just so I, I don't exaggerate here. There is some, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 500 plus religions in the world. All right. And I run into a lot of people. In fact, I met with a couple this week. They told me, they said, there's so many different teachings out there. We just wanted to throw our hands up and say, I don't know which one's right, so I'm not even going to try. That's a lot of people in the world. Let me boil it down to you. In a micro sense, there are 500 plus religions, but really there are only two religions in the world. There's doing and there's done. Right? So what's the doing religion say? The doing religion says you, you have to behave by our moral code and each religion will define that moral code a little different and they greatly vary. All right? In the Islam world, in the extreme Islam world, I understand that all, not all Muslims believe this, but there is a large faction that do. In the extreme Muslim world, if you take the Quran, uh, uh, technically, it will tell you that you need to kill the infidels. That's morally good. Anybody that doesn't believe they're an infidel, kill them, and you will be blessed by that, alright? So, uh, you take the good. Now, in other religions, they'll follow a very similar moral code to where, the way our Bible teaches, but the idea is the same. You follow the moral code, and if you do a good enough job, when you die, you get to the afterlife, and if you kept the moral code sufficiently, you get the good afterlife. If you don't keep the moral code, you get the bad afterlife. Now, that... I, I can take a bunch of religions and fit them in underneath that premise, alright? Catholics and Muslims and many Presbyterian churches and many Methodist churches and uh, uh, most 
all Episcopal churches and most Lutheran churches and Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. I don't have time to list them all today, but all of those fit under the canopies of doing. If I do enough before I die, if I please my my deistic being, then he will let me into the good afterlife. Then there's the other religion. It's done. What does done teach? Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. He already died on the cross. He rose from the dead. I can't do anything to get into heaven. I can just believe that He died for me. Now, the Baptists aren't the only ones that believe this. There are a few others that do. Uh, But this is done. This is done. Alright? Doing and done. Let me just say this here. Those that believe you can lose your salvation, what they're doing is they're trying to marry together doing and done. They're trying to say, yes, Christ did it to get you saved. You must do it to keep yourself saved. You see that? They're trying to take done and doing and put them in a big pot and mix them together. Yes, Jesus did it to save you. And all you got to do is believe and He'll save you. But you got to keep behaving if you don't want to keep that salvation. You got to keep believing just right or you'll lose it. And then you got to go all the way back to the beginning and look back at the cross and say, I believe and I repent and I'm sorry and save me. And He'll save you. And then you got to again continue to behave by a moral code. Let me give you quickly a letter in A and B on motives. Letter A, notice that this is religion driven by fear. This is religion driven by fear. Here's what, in essence, they're saying. You had better behave yourself or God will strip His salvation from you. You see the fear-mongering here? You've got to hold up to this code or you're going to lose your salvation. You had better go to church every single week or you will risk burning in hell. You had better evangelize the lost or you will suffer for all of eternity. You had better stay away from the party life or God will place you back under condemnation. You had better tithe and give your money to the Lord at His church or you will fall from grace. You had better keep your mouth cleaned up or God will send you to hell. This is the same tactic that the doing religion uses. Same tactic. Behave, 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 behave or you are going to be condemned. Now, they will claim you get, you, you, that the point, in, the entrance point of salvation is done, but then everything behind that is doing. It's religion driven by fear. Religion driven by fear. Letter B, let's look at relationship driven by force. What if I went home today and I got in, into serious dad mode and I sat Matthew and April down and the six foot two I won't give you my weight. Big frame I have. Stood over the top of them with my meanest face possible. And I, I growled at them. And I said, you two will have 15 minutes of communication with me a day or I am going to disown you for good. Or I'm going to throw you out of my home and make you come back on your hands and knees begging to be back in my family. They might spend 15 minutes a day with me, but it's never going to feel like it's the right motive. There are people who want to say that you better behave yourself and you better walk with the Lord or He's going to throw you out. He's going to strip your salvation from you. 
You know what that is? That's, uh, that's telling folks you've got to have a relationship, and that relationship is driven by force. By force. You know what kind of relationship this is? This is shallow and phony. Shallow and phony. This kind of relationship is what I call forced Christianity. Now, why do they do this? People that push this, why do they do this? Again, many of them are well-meaning. But the, the motive behind this idea is we have got to continue to fill the pews, fill the offering plate, and run our church. And so if we don't guilt people into being here, then they're not going to come. Here's what I believe. I believe that if I can get you to understand just how much Jesus loves you, His love will compel you to be here. His love will compel you to be obedient in tithes and offerings. And the bills get paid and the gospel goes forth. I don't want to beat you over the head and give you a guilt trip and, and fear monger. I want to tell you that Jesus loves you enough to have forgiven you of your sins. He loves you enough to have poured hundreds of blessings all over you every day. And don't you feel compelled? Don't you feel a sense of gratitude to want to come to His house and say, Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. Thank you for washing away my sins. Thank you for promising me a home in heaven. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Boy, that's why I come every week. They say, oh, you're the pastor. You have to be here. I haven't always been a pastor. I haven't always been a pastor. Their motives is fear-mongering. I'm not here to, to beat you over the head with guilt. I'm here to tell you, you have a God that loves you. That ought to compel you to serve Him. Number one, we looked at the misunderstandings of Scripture. Number two, we've looked at the motives of many. Number three, let's look at the message of eternal security. I'm going to move through these quickly. Let me provide you just a small sample of proof from the Word of God that once you receive salvation, you cannot lose it. All right, we're going to move quickly through these. If you're taking notes, get your, get your hand ready to write fast. Number one, uh, or rather the first proof here, all my sins are blotted out. All my sins are blotted out. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. In heaven there is a book. And in that book are recorded every sin that you have committed and that you will commit. God already knew before you were born on this earth every sin of your entire life. And they're all written down. And if you die without Jesus, you die without having put your faith and trust in Him to save you, at your day of reckoning in heaven, you're going to stand before the judge and that book or volume of books of the sins of your life are going to be brought out and presented as evidence of, of your sin. Now, what happens when you get saved? The sins are not... The page, the sins are not like, they don't just like, it's not disappearing ink. They don't just disappear. What happens is God sends an angel in, or rather God goes in with a, a, a pen. And you remember like in school when you made a mistake and you took your pen and you went, you like that sound effect? He went over with a, you go over with a pen and you mark over where it can't be read. Or maybe you knew a teacher was about to come and get the note that you passed in class. And really quick you're like, trying to scribble it out. God blots out your sins as though they, yes, they're there, but they're covered up. Every sin. He doesn't just do the ones that you committed up to that point of salvation. Every single sin you've ever committed is blotted out. Every one of them. All right, second one here. Notice, second proof. Notice, you can only be born again once. 
You can only be born again once. Take your Bible over to John chapter 3. I'm going to start reading while you're turning. If you're in John 10, it's just a couple pages to the left there. John chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered said unto him, uh, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you're confused by that, you're not alone. Nicodemus was as well. Verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, look here, except a man be born of water, that's the water birth, you're born in a water sack, born of water, a physical birth, and of the spirit, a spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. God said that in order to get into heaven, you must be born twice. You must be born of the water. You can't be saved if you're not alive, right? So you're brought into the world through the water sack of your mother, and then you put your faith in Jesus. There is a new birth, a being born anew, a being born again in Christ. You don't get born again and again and again and again and again. You get born again once. You only get born again once. To believe that, you lose your salvation. In essence, you're saying that this person must be born again and then come back and be born again and then be born again. And and that just doesn't line up with Scripture. All right, let me give you the third premise here for eternal security, and that is that God is not an Indian giver. God is not an Indian giver. Listen to John 3.16. You're in John 3, look down at verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave. So this is a gift He gave. He gave, what did He give? His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So if you believe, then you have or you get the gift of everlasting life. You say, well, the Bible there doesn't say it's a gift. Well, Romans 6.23 does. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me ask you a question this morning. What do you call somebody that gives you something and takes it back? What else do you call them? A thief. A thief. Now, by the way, that term Indian giver, our politically correct society has taken it away. Children don't sit Indian style anymore. They sit crisscross. Because we gotta, you know, we gotta be nice to the Indians, uh, but we still have the Washington Redskins. Go figure that one out. Um, we, you, I, I'm telling you, I've tried this. Ask a kid under ten what Indian giving is. They don't know. They don't have a clue. Now we know what's wrong with our society. Amen. No, I'm just teasing. Indian giving. It's this idea that I'm going to take this and give it to you, and then I'm going to come back and say, nope, I want it back. We all had kids in elementary school that did that to us. Some of you were that kid that did it to me. Amen? Uh, But we all know those those types. Indian giving. God does not give you the gift of eternal life and go, Oh, I don't like the way you're living your life. Let me have it back. That would make God a thief. And my friend, God is not a thief. God is not an Indian giver. Number four, notice sonship can never be broken. Sonship can never be broken. Turn over to John chapter 1. You're in John 3. Turn over to John 1 and look at verse 12. It says there, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, or the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. You know what happened the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus? He adopted you into his family. You became a child of the king. 
what kind of dad would I be if every time Matthew did something wrong, I said, you're not in my family anymore? Not a very good dad. Now, in comparison to God the Father, Matthew tells, the book of Matthew tells me that I am evil as a father on earth. He is so much better at being a father than I am, I'm evil. If I'm not going to expel my son out of my home, out of really misbehaving, or let's say he rebels as a teenager, we pray that doesn't happen, let's say that happens, I'm not going to disown my son. Sonship can't be broken, by the way. If my son were to, to grow up, leave my house, uh, uh, rob a bank, kill someone in the process, uh, uh, fly, to, fly to Asia, change his name and disown me, fellowship with him would be broken, but sonship can never be broken. He will always be my son. There's nothing that can change that. You've been born into the family of God. You've been adopted into His family. You can behave however you want. Fellowship with God will be broken. Sonship can never be broken. You're in His family. That's a sealed deal. Let me give you another one here. I have to hasten. An eternal gift cannot be uh, terminated by a temporal being. An eternal gift cannot be terminated by a temporal being. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's eternal. Now, this is the one that leaves me scratching my head going, how can you believe that you can lose the gift of God if it's called eternal? Like, how do you come to that rationale? This one by itself is... All I need to prove that my salvation is eternal. God gave me a gift at my entrance point of believing in what He did. He gave me a gift called eternal life. If it's eternal, I can't lose it. It can't be lost. My temporal being that's one day going to die and lay in the grave, that cannot sever something that is eternal. How about this one? Uh, Your salvation is protected inside of Jesus' hand. Go back to John chapter 10 where we started this morning in verse 28. John chapter 10 verse 28. The Bible says, And I give unto them, this is Jesus speaking, And I, Jesus, give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So, Jesus is saying here, You put your faith in me, I gave you eternal life, you are wrapped up inside my hand. Now we know that Jesus is, uh, is God, and being God, He's omnipotent, meaning He's all-powerful. Uh, uh, sometimes with my kids, I'll put like a coin in my hand and I'll seal my hand up and I'll say, try to get it out. And they'll pry one finger off and, and by about the time they're working on the second finger, the first one closes. And they can't do it. You know, uh, I don't know uh, any being that's capable of peeling you out of the hand of God, right? out of the hand of Jesus. Can't be done. By the way, once he's locked his hand around you, you can't get out either. You say, well, I, I disown Christianity. Sorry. You believe you're in. And you, I don't want to be in. Wait till you die. You'll be glad you're still in. <laughs> but not only are you locked in the hand of Jesus, not only are you protected inside the hand of Jesus, look, the next uh, uh, one here, your salvation is double protected inside of the Father's hand. Look at verse 29. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So here's how this works. I'll take the bottle cap here, and I'll put this inside of this hand. This would represent the Jesus' hand. God takes His hands and wraps them around Jesus' hand, and He looks at Satan and He says, You want their soul? you got to come through God the Father and God the Son. Good luck. 
You're locked in. You're locked in. And if you thought you could somehow wiggle out of Jesus' hand, good luck wiggling out of God's hand. The Bible tells us that He holds the waters of the world in His palm. You'll never get out. Let me give you, let me give you two more here, really quick. The next one here. Since your works did not earn your salvation, they cannot keep your salvation. Since your works did not earn your salvation, they cannot keep your salvation. Titus 3 verse 5 says this, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, and by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. You weren't redeemed by works. Why in the world do you think your works are going to maintain that salvation? It makes no sense. If you can't earn it, why would it be up to you to keep it? And the last one I'll give you here today, your day of redemption is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, it says this, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, this verse says that if you sin, what's going to happen is you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. But, but, but... Your day of redemption sealed. That can't change. There's going to be a day I step on heaven's shore and the sanctification process, the becoming like Jesus process will be complete. I'll look exactly like my God, my Savior. Until that day, until that day, that day of redemption sealed. I want you to imagine that there is a book in heaven with all the names of all the human population and that everybody's name is written in pencil. And if you choose not to believe in Jesus, at your death, an eraser is taken to that name and you're erased out of that book. But at the moment you believe, there is a wax seal that's placed over your name and your name can never be erased. Never be erased. The question today is this. Has your name been sealed? Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you have, your name will never be erased out of the book of life. If you haven't, one day... Your name will be erased and God will cast you into the lake of fire because you chose not to place your faith in the act of His Son on the cross. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Let me ask you a question today. How many would say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day in my life I put my faith in Jesus. One singular moment in the history of time, I, history of time of my life, I put my faith in Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus alone, not in my works, just in Jesus and what He did for me. His death, His burial, His resurrection. I know that I'm going to heaven, not because of what I did prior to or what I've done since. I'm going to heaven because of His grace and His grace alone. If that's your testimony, would you slip up your hand? You say, Pastor, I know I'm going to heaven. That's... Amen. If you're here today and you've not done that, it's very simple. You, you bow your head and in faith you call on the name of the Lord. Romans 10.13 talks about the receiving of that gift. That gift of eternal life. It says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be rescued, shall be given the gift of eternal life. If you've not yet received that gift... Why don't you, in your desperation, call out to God and ask Him to give it to you? You see, I can uh, offer you the keys to a brand new sports car. I can pay the insurance and the taxes and the gas and, 
And I can say there's really no expense to you. All you've got to do is reach out and take it. And you're at that point left with a choice. You can take it or leave it. God's already paid the price for your salvation. It's free. It's yours. There's no strings attached to it. You're left with the choice. Are you going to ex- extend the hand of faith and receive it? Are you going to exercise that faith and get into the plane of salvation? Or are you going to have the knowledge of truth and walk away? I would just encourage you, be careful. If you know about how to be saved, don't let the patience of God run out on you. Won't you, by faith, receive the greatest gift that could ever be offered today? Won't you just believe? If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never exercised your faith, uh, your heart's faith, will you do that today? Will you just pray this simple prayer where you're sitting? Let me help you call out on God's name under your breath, right there in your pew. Just pray this prayer. Just say, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve to go to hell for my sin. Thank you for going through hell for me on the cross. Please give me your gift of eternal life. I do not rely on my good works but I rather rely on you. Save my soul. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer for the first time and meant it, I'd like to rejoice with you. Would you indicate that just by simply lifting your hand for me, raising your hand if you prayed that prayer? Is there one today? Is there one? How many here today say, Pastor, there are people in my life who are very confused on this topic. Pastor, would you pray for me that God will help me to take the truth to them and help explain it to them in a way they'll understand it? Pastor, that's me. That's my situation. Would you pray for me? Would you raise your hand? And how many here today say, Pastor, there's a trouble in my life, a trial in my life I'm going through. Would you pray that God would extend His grace to me as I carry this difficult load? If that's you, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you? Many hands. Lord, I do pray for those that are hurting, those that are carrying a, a difficult load in their life. Would you help us as a church to help them to bear that? Would you help them to share that burden with those around them? And Lord, would you sustain them as they go through a tough time? And Lord, I pray for those who need salvation, or yet holding out. Would you help them to come under that hand of conviction and just believe? Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be strong in our faith and strong in our knowledge of it and bold to share that with others around us. In Jesus' name.